Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In this week's episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I hand over the interviewing reins to Alice Ruer. You may remember Alice as a guest in episode three of the podcast. Alice is a partner of SMB Advisory and is a registered liquidator and trustee in bankruptcy. She is also the host of the newly launched SMB Wisdom podcast. This podcast shares the advice of experienced business advisors for the benefits of small businesses. Alice's guest for today's episode is none other than me. In this episode, Alice quizzes me about what is a negotiation specialist? How did I become a negotiation specialist? What are the challenges with the existing processes for resolving disputes through litigation? What is the role of gender in negotiations? And what are my top tips to improve your negotiations? It was a real delight to be interviewed by Alice and I hope you enjoy listening to our discussions. So, Alice, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me, Nicole. It's a pleasure. Uh, Well, I think it's going to be my pleasure because today we've decided you're going to take over the reins and you are going to become the question asker. And in the turning of tables, I'm going to have to answer your questions. So I don't know whether to be a little bit nervous or not, but I'm really pleased to hand the reins over to you. Thanks, Nicole. No, look, the um, honour is all mine. I'm truly excited to be taking the reins on this one today and I just hope that I can I can do you justice. But as I have said to you earlier, I think one of the, you know, the best things we could do for this podcast is interview you. You're the negotiation specialist um, and this is a negotiation and in real life podcast. So um, who better to interview? Well, thank you, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, we're talking about negotiation specialists, so shall we kick off today by actually explaining what that is? What's your interpretation of a negotiation specialist? That's a great question, Alice, because I think unlike a lot of other professions or jobs, there isn't a really clear definition of what a negotiation specialist is. So to me, the sort of overriding concept is that I bring a deep, understanding of negotiation and the strategy behind negotiation to the work that I do. And for me, most of my work tends to be focused on the conflict side of negotiation. Mm -hmm. I was speaking to someone the other day who specializes in negotiations for retail businesses, Mm. um, helping negotiate supply agreements. Um, She's got another connection who specializes in negotiation in the construction side. So we all have this commonality of understanding negotiation deeply. We have different ways that we use that. And for me, my industry expertise or coverage is actually quite broad because that's the Mm. background I bring from other things that I've done in the past as well. And I think that's really important too. And it's what we do look for, especially sort of, you know, when 
in in litigation sort of matters or dispute matters. Your listeners might know, but I'm a, a liquidator and a trustee in bankruptcy. So we do a lot of these dispute matters quite often. And when you do have a mediator or someone who's coming in to assist you, in those sorts of negotiation um, matters, it's really important that, you know, we feel and that the other side, of course, feels that there is um, some understanding of the actual issues at play, what actually happens, what might be some of the sticking points. And it is the case, I must admit, sometimes where, you know, there might be a fabulous mediator or negotiation specialist there, but they just can't necessarily latch on to what might be the key things for a lot of people. And I know that in your background, you've had a lot of experience in a lot of different matters that have really helped you to be able to see you know many different perspectives within a negotiation scenario. Yeah and I think it's really interesting because certainly when you learn mediation the law of mediation is that once you know how to mediate you can mediate anything Mm. Um, because you are facilitating a process the sort of general wisdom within the mediation community is that subject matter expertise isn't required. I think you don't need to be an expert in the subject. Like I don't need to have the same level of understanding of the technicalities of the disputes as the parties. But what I do need to bring is the ability to pick what are the key questions that need to be asked. So you do need to understand at a high level what that particular industry is or what the particular challenges it faces are. Um, So you need to sort of understand that and be able to talk a common language because I think what I hear you saying is there's a little bit more trust when the mediator understands where you are and what your industry is about. Now, Mm. that trust doesn't have to be built around deep expertise, but it can be about talking the same language. So if I can use the right terminology, if I can use the right um, levers within that conversation to give a sense that I understand and I'm on the same page as you, that's generally enough to build the trust in the process and for Mm. me to then come in as a mediator. I think in some ways there's a benefit in not having deep expertise and being deeply embedded in the specific industry because that allows you to look a little bit more broadly and perhaps be a bit more creative with some of the ideas that might pop up for exploration in the mediation Oh, I think that's vitally important. And I think that um, it can be incredibly beneficial as well, because I think actually asking the parties to explain certain technical aspects or certain specific aspects of a case um, that everybody has before then assumed that everyone knows and is taking for granted can actually sometimes pick up. I think anyway, um, some, some, you know, little bindies in the side that is like, well, maybe it's not actually as straightforward as we have thought that it was. Yeah. Um, and if I do need to actually, you know, spell out the things, um, I can then almost hear myself talking and explain back that, well, actually that's quite helpful because maybe I'm not as confident as I was when I just assumed everyone knew what we were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think once again, particularly in an area like yours where you're absolutely an expert on insolvency and whether it's a preference claim or whether it's a you know, director claim against a director for misuse of funds, you know all of that, but they don't. And so Mm. I think you've hit it there with the assumption that they understand as much as you do can get in the way. So bringing it back to basics. And, you know, I think sometimes as a mediator, you ask the question to sort of, you know, put this in as simple terms as possible for me. And it's not because you as the mediator don't understand, but you're actually wanting it to be conveyed so that it is simplified for people. 
Yeah, and I guess um, it would probably be helpful, well, it would be helpful for me to know and it might be helpful for listeners to know also, Nicole, but how would you prepare for a mediation, especially with something which you sort of in an industry maybe that you um, haven't done a lot of work in but you do know the general issues around and you've, you may have had a few matters in that area but you want to maybe brush up a little bit. What's your process for preparing Yeah, that's for a really good question actually, Alice. And, look, I think there's a couple of things. One is the best thing for me to do to prepare for a mediation is to actually have spoken to both of the parties. Yeah. Um, and ideally that is the parties themselves rather than their lawyers because what I do then is I really can get a very clear sense from them about what they really care about. And so that's a really important part of it. And that then gives me also some indications of where there might be things that I need to go and do a bit of research about before the mediation, um, Mm. because they might be talking about some things. And I might ask a few questions in that preliminary meeting, but it might also go, you know what, I just need to go and bone up a little bit on this particular aspect. Um, so that's sort of the number one thing. Um, also, you know, the, the parties will send me through sometimes reams and reams and reams of materials prior to the mediation. I have to say, you know, I will go through what's sent, but often I will go through at a relatively high level. Once mm-hmm. again, just looking for those sort of key things that stand out that might be important in the mediation. I don't need to be across every single fact that the parties will point out the facts that are Mm. important um, in that process. But I do want to be across that so that when they bring it up, it's something that I'm sort of already aware of and I can look at. And then I guess, you know, once again, if there's a bit of research that I can do around the parties to find out about their particular companies and and Mm. issues that might be going on in their industry that could be relevant to Mm. moving towards a settlement, then Mm. I'll spend a little bit of time doing that as well. That's fabulous. And I think that's, you know, preparation is always key, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you do. It puts you in such a good stead, um, you know, entering into those forums. Yeah, I'll often go through um, the materials and it depends. Sometimes all I'm given is the pleadings. If it's a case that's being litigated, sometimes I'll get a position statement. I will try and go through and have a look at where are the areas where the parties actually seem to be already in agreement um yep. and where are the things that are the most controversial so I'll try and get an idea before we come in as to what might be raised by the parties but I do find sometimes that the things that I've thought of are going to be the big discussion points actually aren't and there's something else comes up in the opening statement so okay we're going down a different path so I think it's important to keep an open mind or otherwise you go into the mediation sort of pushing your own agenda as the mediator which is never the way that it's supposed to be yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess that brings us to sort of the $64 million question. And how did you end up here? How did you become a, a negotiation specialist? I'd like to say that it was a strategic decision um, that I worked my way towards. But it, it was, in a lot of ways, it was an accident. And I think, you know, I think I've, I've been asked about my career path a few times recently. And, and I, I enjoy telling the story because I think it also, it, it's a real exploration of finding your path and what you enjoy doing. Mm. I started with a law commerce degree and had never, ever wanted to even do law, let alone get a degree in it or work in it. I only did it because I got the marks in year 12 Mm. and I thought, well, it's an opportunity. I may as well do it. So having gone through the law commerce, there was a few things about law that just didn't sit right with me. Mm -hmm. And, And I think partly some of the things that didn't sit right are the reasons why I love mediation so much. So the technicality of the law and the fact that 
you know, I think there are people who have a good case, but because the other lawyer is better, they will lose. And to me, that doesn't represent fairness. So I had a few issues with some of the ways that the legal system works. So I went into commercial insolvency as a grad, absolutely loved it. It's a fun area, some good stuff to do. But then I realized I was going to have to sit PY exams to become an accountant. And I could have just become a lawyer by just going and working for 12 months. So I made that very, you know, wise career choice as you do in your 20s that I'll just take the easy road. (laughs) And I went and did my articles. And and I think part of me also had that deep-seated question about having done a law degree, would I like being a lawyer? Maybe it was different to what I thought. So it it was a nice opportunity to sort of clarify that question. Didn't take too long before I was um, agreeing. You got your you know, I was not. I was not <laughs> cut out to be a lawyer. But as I say, I, I did my articles um, at a large firm. And I then, interestingly, having loved the insolvency part, what I found about insolvency was, and you've probably experienced this for yourself, it tends to be a fairly negative place to mm. work. No, um, there's a lot of unhappy people. Also, no one's sending you flowers. I always say to my team, you know, when they're talking, no one's sending you flowers. You're not getting lovely flowers, everyone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and so I was looking for something that was maybe a little bit more where I might get some flowers or maybe a client would take me out to lunch or something. Not many company directors take you out for lunch when you're liquidating their business. <laughs> and so I went into investment banking thinking that would be really good fun. You know, once again, I think it was interesting from the perspective of seeing different industries and you really get to understand what are the key drivers in those industries and and identify how to find those key drivers. Mm. But at the same time, I felt for me, and, and this was, I guess, relevant to the teams that I worked, it was just about making money, not about doing good Mm. in the world. And the point at which we did a deal and somebody that I was working with on that deal said to me, well, it's not actually a very good deal, but that's okay because they'll be back in five years so we can now sell the business for them. We'll get another fee. And I Mm. thought, oh, that's just not who I am. So left that, tried a bit of a stint as a recruitment consultant for a while because I thought, you know, that's nice. That's helping people. Mm -hmm. And I soon realized that recruitment wasn't actually about helping the candidates. It was about filling people into a slot. So that didn't sort of meet my need either. So I'm still struggling around going, what am I going to do? I did a bit of a reflection. I went, okay, I've done all of these things. I'd only been eight or nine years into my career at this point. And I thought, I really enjoyed insolvency. I'll go back to insolvency. So I actually went there and spent the longest job I've had as an employee in my corporate careers, three and a half years, um, I stayed there at Anderson and EY. And once again, it was great. But for me, the sense that you were limited in how much good you could do because of the nature of the industry still just didn't sit well with me. And after going to a leadership development program that I was sent on by EY and They were amazing people that ran this program and everyone was having these great little moments of self-learning. And I thought, wow, they're doing something really powerful. I'm going to recreate myself as a learning and development person so I can get me a bit of this. And so I went about doing that. I did my MBTI, Myers-Briggs accreditation. Mm -hmm. I started a post-grad diploma in learning and development and eventually felt I was ready to start applying for jobs in learning and development. I knew that I was, well, I was a manager at EY at that point and I thought, I don't want to take a massive pay pay cut. Where can I Mm. go to work in learning and development where I can 
earn a similar amount yeah. to what I've been in. And what do you think I picked? Same firm. I tried that. That wasn't going to work, unfortunately. No, I figured the only place that I could go where I would be able to take a relevant role would be a law firm because in a law firm, they they went, well, you're an ex-lawyer, so you'll be able to yeah, pick anything absolutely. else up. It's pretty, you know, you're pretty smart. So I jumped into an L&D role um, at a large law firm knowing absolutely nothing. I'm suddenly in a manager role. I've never done it before. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Luckily, I was part of a national team, so there was some support there. So after a few years of working and learning and development, starting to facilitate, I ended up taking a role where I was training all sorts of soft skills. So it was influencing, presentation skills, communication, all of these things. And I decided I really liked the training room and being in front and teaching people. That was actually over in Dubai and came back to Melbourne and joined an organization that specialized in um, negotiation skills training. And that was where I found the subject matter that really made my heart sing. I just fell in love with negotiation and thought, you know, if I'd had this when I was doing my insolvency, when I was doing my legal and in banking it would have been a different experience. Mm. I would have handled some of the challenges differently and loved teaching Mm. it, but also wanted to do. So after a couple of years of teaching, I did my mediation accreditation and that's when I went out on my own um, so that I could have that beautiful balance of teaching, but still doing and learning. And they sort of feed into each other. The, The teaching and the learning improves the way that I do and the doing improves the way that I teach and learn. So I feel like I've landed Isn't that in an a really amazing, amazing spot. story, and I just I love it. I've heard it before, and I love it. Like, and I I really think that um being able to to talk through, you know, how you ended up where you are doing such an amazing job, it's important because I think there's a lot of people still now more maybe who sort of are in an industry or in a career that they've sort of chosen a long time ago. And um, are sort of wondering, you know, well, what's next? Is that my passion? Is it what I want to do? And you can so effectively use those skills that you built up through that time and then, you know, into a new career and into a new vocation. And dare I ask, how long have you been into negotiation from your learning and development days, but um, actually practicing in negotiation now? I joined the negotiation consultancy in 2014. Wow. So it's coming up for eight years. Um, so I was with them for about three. And look, I think it's interesting what you say, because, you know, one of the amazing things and one of the best things about having gone and done my articles and qualifying as a lawyer was Um, partly about the experience, but more about the amazing group of people that I did my articles with. We had such a great year of graduates and many of them are still some of my best friends today. And it is interesting because I talk to people who will say, I've never had the courage Mm. to leave the law. I don't enjoy it, but I haven't had the courage to leave. And you know, whether it was courage or stupidity at the time, Mm. I was willing to make that step, which has been great. And I think it's really easy, particularly if you've been in the law for a few years or any profession that is, you know, relatively well paid and and stable, it's really difficult to Mm. then step out and take a risk. And, you know, for me, I was actually, by the time I'd been in banking for a little while, I was actually quite depressed and quite unhappy. And so making that step was relatively easy for me because, I knew that I couldn't stay there and keep going the way that I was. Mm. So in some ways that was no. helpful. Look, it can be, but, um, can but be kudos to you for doing it. And you've made such an impact, I think, as well by doing that, um, which has been great for all of us. It's the truth. Thank you. Um, negotiation. 
well, coming from a legal background can sometimes be seen, especially you know, from the context of mediations, as a step in the process to get to trial or as a step in the process to get a resolution, not always as the means to get the resolution, if that makes sense. So what I'm saying is, you know, we always normally get um, yeah. orders handed down that include a dispute resolution or a negotiation or mediation step that needs to be done and needs to be ticked off mm-hmm. um, before moving on to the next parts of the trial. Now, I, for one, as you very much um, are aware, I'm a big fan of the mediation. I think that there's, you know, most things can really be settled um, and can be looked at from different perspectives and a lot of stuff will come out in the mediation that doesn't necessarily come out before beforehand so I think that they're a very valuable part of the process however it is still a process isn't it the litigation process do you have any thoughts in terms of the process as it were the steps that we take in that process and how we might be able to use negotiation and mediation a little bit more positively in getting maybe earlier results as opposed to Mm. going down that traditional litigation process path? I have some very strong views on that, Alice. And look, interesting, I think just addressing the first part of what you said there in terms of Mm. it's seen as part of the process and there's almost Mm. an expectation we just have to tick this box and then we'll be moving through to the next stage, which is, of course, heading towards trial. And I think that's one of the real challenges that we face as mediators as well because the problem that we have is that there is an adversarial nature to our trial system and it's very much about, you know, you only disclose what you absolutely need to disclose. Um, There's information that's kept aside so that it can be used at trial and there's a benefit in sort of, dare I say, ambushing people as late as possible with information Mm. to keep your chances at trial. Keep your powder dry. Yeah, to keep your powder dry and you know, that's one of the real issues that comes up in a mediation because people will say to me, oh, well, you don't want to disclose this fact yet at mediation because we want to be able to keep that in case it doesn't settle. And, you know, for me, it's then trying to have discussions with people about, well, if you don't disclose this, how do you expect them to make a settlement offer that takes that into account? So I think there's a couple of things. and, And the most important is that mediation needs to be seen as something that people actually do go into with a real mm. genuine desire to get to a settlement because otherwise, you know, mm. it's a fait accompli that you won't settle. The second thing in terms of the timing, I think once again, one of the issues is that people think that you get one mm. go to mediate. I am a big advocate in what I term early intervention mediation, which basically means why don't you have a go at mediating mm. before you even issue proceedings? If you've made your letter of demand and there hasn't been a response, why not try and get the parties in a room with a neutral facilitator and try and nut things mm. out to save everybody the cost um, mm. of issuing? You know, when when it's $1,000 just for yep. the court fees or so to issue, let alone the lawyer's time and fees to draft all of that up, why not try and avoid that and settle? And there's a lot of discussion about the concept of Mm -hmm. um, the ripeness of a dispute for mediation and is it the right time. And to me, that all takes the view that there is one mediation, whereas I think if you actually bring people to mediation, even if it doesn't settle, you will have made progress in the negotiations and you will have made more progress than just Mm -hmm. doing things backwards and forwards on paper. And that, to me, is one of the real benefits of the mediation process is that everybody's in the room together having discussions. Whereas 
you know, I don't know about mm. your experience, I'd be interested to hear, but it seems with most disputes, it gets handed over to the lawyers. The lawyers just correspond in writing. And often the mediation is the first time that they've been in the room together, even though this dispute mm. might have been going no, on. No, I think that's right. My um, feeling about that is that that's changed over time. I recall, you know, in the early 2000s when I sort of came out, um, and started practicing, it was a little bit different. And I'm sure, again, before earlier than that, but it was a point where someone would pick up the phone, they'd have a chat, what can we do about this? You know, and you try and resolve things before, you know, sort of moving on to that more formal stage. Now, that could be the parties that I, you know, worked around and worked with. It might not have been, a, you know, a stereotypical way of, of dealing. But I do believe that now there's so many reasons and um I don't know, um, strategies I think that have been put forward um, sort of from different playbooks where that correspondence, correspondence at the 11th hour, you know, I hate the 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, 17-page, you know, letter oh. that you make to your heart come into your throat. And, and it works both ways and I'll say this because you get that at 4 o'clock on the Thursday afternoon by 4 o'clock on the Monday your lawyers have drafted something back and you feel 10 foot tall and bulletproof. So it's like, you know, it, it's clearly not the case yeah. that the parties are that far apart <laughs> that one is entirely correct and the other is entirely incorrect. But that's yeah. what's portrayed through the entire process. And I do think that earlier um, intervention in terms of, you know, alternative dispute resolution is, you know, it, is has its advantages. But I will say this, I've done that before and it's it's not ended well because maybe we didn't understand how well that process could be done. We've done sort of mediations before issuing and then you sort of feel a little bit left out. They hadn't settled. You feel a little bit left out in the cold because you think I tried very hard to do the best thing we could for everybody involved yeah. and, and we didn't settle. And now we start from square one again and you sort of work through that process. So I do, I sort of see it from both sides, but I do think that there is benefit in understanding that everyone is human. I, I think sometimes, you know, when there's people drafting yes. these letters and you've got keyboard warriors out there and it's just someone must have really made you angry or given you a bad day because there's nothing that really warrants you having that attitude um, when really you can put your same view across without all of the sort of vitriol, if that makes sense. Um, I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, and look, it's interesting too because, you know, sometimes the vitriol is implied by us because we might have a little bit of knowledge about the person and you and, and that's one of the problems, you know, you, you put things in writing and mm. the only tone of voice mm. and vitriol normally comes through tone of voice unless they're using expletives or something, you know, how what is it that so we're true. seeing on that piece of paper that gives us that sense of vitriol? Or is it just that we're assuming that that's the tone of voice that they intended? And, you know, once again, the biggest problem with communicating just in writing mm. is that it's you do not get any clarity around that. And written communication will escalate it because if you're in dispute with someone, your brain is automatically more likely to put mm. a negative tone of voice onto that text than it would if it was somebody that you liked and enjoyed working with. Okay. So I think it's a huge problem. And, and frankly, I think it's because of email. It's because of the ease at which we can present letters. Like when I was a grad, to get a letter out to somebody mm. took like days because you had to draft it, you had to get it approved by your manager, it had to get through word processing and then it had to go back to fix all the mistakes that word processing had put through it 
and then it had to get ticked and bashed and checked. Mm. And so it was a big deal to do a letter. Mm. So it was much easier to pick up. Isn't the phone that that's the- so true? Yeah. Yeah. And I think now it's just people go, I can bang something out and check it myself and send it. With the ease of doing a letter, people will just sit down and, and you know, bang it out. They'll mm-hmm. get the get the words on paper and they'll get it out. And then they don't have to say anything to the other person. You know, I think you know, getting beyond mm. all of this out into the general realm of society, our ability to have conversations is I declining, I think. Hopefully not amongst these educated professionals that are doing these things, but as a whole, I think. Oh, look, I think so. But I think just um, one part of the ease of getting correspondence out that I do absolutely agree with, and I remember, you know, I'm sort of from the age where you used to have to dictate and put in the typing call and it came back as well. You then actually had a chance to reflect on what you said. And when it comes back from somebody else and you're reading it as printed out from someone else, and I'm not talking these were the most, you know, efficient of times, but it's what you're doing. And you're like, dude, that's a bit harsh. You actually get the mm. chance to read it on a piece of paper that's handed back to you from the typing call. You know, that's what it is. And you, you can then go, oh, and that's, I mean, I've learned things like I will never say that I will do something. I always say that I may do something. Um, I'll never say that you've left me with no alternative, yep. but you, I'll say that I may have. You know, you, you know that these things that I think just yeah. read a little bit easier and provide a little bit more cushioning doesn't make it any less um, effective. Doesn't mean you can't do something, but it actually you know assists in that communication. And I think what you hit the nail on the head before about the, the vitriol and in whose voice you're actually listening to things come through. And and these are all things that are making disputes more prevalent and settlements a little bit more difficult. Mm. I think. I think so, absolutely. So I guess if we're coming back, Nicole, to looking at different personalities as well, when we're talking about mediation and disputes, you know, we're talking about when we receive letters from different parties and how we're sort of um, imagining we're being spoken to by through those letters and um, in different situations. I wonder whether or not you've seen in your experience or you have any views on whether gender actually plays any role at all in negotiations and settlements? Uh, Look, it absolutely does. And there's quite a substantial amount of research around the impact of gender in negotiations. And probably the biggest impact that's been proven is the impact on how a woman is perceived when she is quite strong in her negotiation techniques. So they call it, I can't remember the names, it was the uh, the Henry and Heidi uh, distinction. Um, And I don't think it was Henry, Mm. but anyway, it was was a man's name and a woman's name where they, um, the researchers gave a number of people a resume and asked them to rate that person on their likability and their capacity to do the job. And everyone was given exactly the same resume, but half of them, it was, the name was a male name and half of them, it was a female name. And interestingly, despite the fact that all of the skills and experience were the same, people rated the man more likable and more capable of doing the job. And that sort of ties Mm. in with, isn't it fascinating? And it ties in with research that suggests that a woman who negotiates strongly for something for herself is seen as unlikable, a little bit um, yeah, I was going to say uh, greedy, selfish, yeah. and overly overly ambitious, greedy. Mm. Whereas a man is expected to do the same. So there are things that women can do to try and uh, 
sort of work around that. So, you know, they talk about if you're um, a female and you're negotiating for something for yourself, perhaps it's flexibility in the workplace, perhaps it's um, additional resources, rather than putting that as something to benefit you, finding a way that you can Mm. show how that will benefit the team as a whole is taken as a positive because women are meant to be caring and nurturing around their teams. So we do, as women, face a few challenges when we want to negotiate for ourselves. You know, of course, there's also the bias that might come from males when we're negotiating with them where, you know, there are still some people in the workforce, unfortunately, who don't respect Mm -hmm. women the same way they respect men. And so they will bring that sort of disrespect Mm -hmm. into the negotiations and might be quite dismissive about what the woman's saying. You know, I, I know that I've personally experienced, even in some of the mediations that I do, where some of the generally older male barristers will be basically trying Mm. to bully me into doing what they want and being firm and just staying calm in that moment, being able to question what they want and explain Mm. why it's not going to work takes a little bit of practice. um, They're all amazing points and I think they're right. I mean, I understand that to be the case as well from the position that I, I come from. A couple of things I would sort of put in that as well, understanding that we're interviewing you and not me, but just to add to that, um, is that we shouldn't have to, and I totally understand that we shouldn't have to, and there shouldn't be the bias, but there is. And in my sort of point of view, and I'm interested to mm. hear your thoughts on this, but in my point of view, as if you can do things that can make you more successful in your negotiations or in your outcomes, then why wouldn't you do them? One of the big things for me is allowing other people to save face, and I've learned that over time, um, where I'm... Yeah dead certain that the position that I'm coming from for one little bit we can't be dead certain about everything you know but in in a specific matter in a specific dispute that I'm in the right you know or that there's a fact that I am you know would die on the sword for and it's not about sort of sitting there and resisting what the other has to say but almost giving them options to save their face and to to allow your point of view or your understanding to I guess, prevail um, has always been a big one for me because I think the more that you sort of try and be stubborn about it and other people are sort of crumbling to save their face, it's never going to end well, I think is a, a big one for me. You're so right. And and look, it comes down for me, I put my sort of negotiation lens over the top of that and then I go one of the, um, in a situation like that, one of the main interests of that difficult negotiator is their ego, is their perception of themselves as a negotiator. So you've got to take that interest into account Mm. in how you deal with them. And that is exactly as you say, you know, you've got to find a way to to allow them to save face. There is no point, you know, I think I was just talking to someone the other day, I think it's Newton's fourth law or something. For each and every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So if I push against you, you're going Mm. to push right back against me. So finding a way to sort of move around those blockages Mm. rather than pushing them is a much more appropriate way to go. And I think you can sometimes get your points on the board, you know, and maybe I'm being slightly more egotistical with that. But I think sometimes if you can let somebody else save face, sometimes that will come back and help you. Um, in the future because it's sort of that whole karma thing. Oh, particularly mm. if their client is in the room, 
Yeah. And this is the thing, you know, if you've got lawyers there or if you've got somebody else who's got a client, then allowing them to still look the part in front of their client, but maneuvering through where they wanted to go to get to something that works for you, you will absolutely, um, they may never admit that they've got some gratitude or respect for you, but it will be there. And and it will change the way that they negotiate so. with you next time. So that's likely. some really good tips that you've given there in terms, especially from a, the gender point of view. And I'm thank you for those um, those tips because I think that's really necessary. And I think there's a lot of women out there who would like to actually negotiate a little bit more for themselves and, and in their positions and maybe haven't thought about those viewpoints before. Um, but if we maybe turn to being a little bit more general, do you have any top tips for everybody to improve their mediation or their negotiation, sorry? The main one that I see, and and this comes from years of running training programs and putting people in a room to give them, you know, get them negotiating before they have even gone through the theory to sort of look at where they're going. And I think the two most common challenges that I see for people is the desire to convince somebody Mm -hmm. that you are right. So often the negotiation consists of, say I was negotiating with you, I'd come in and I'd tell you all the reasons why why I'm proposing something is better for you than what you want for yourself. Now, that's Newton's law comes back in. The more I push my solution on you, the more you're going to resist it. So the idea of actually coming in and, you know, you've got to recognise that that's the case. And I think you've also got to recognise that people are going to make smart choices for themselves. If I want them to say yes to a proposal that I'm putting forward, there has to be something in it for them. If the other person is resisting and rejecting every proposal because Mm. actually it hurts them or Mm. it has no net gain, you know, it either does harm or it doesn't do gain, Mm. then why would they say yes? So that ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes and actually look at what would I do if I was them? Absolutely. You know, empathy is is probably the other thing that mm. we need to see more and of one of my favorites that have come from you in the past as well nicole is understanding that what's on the table is not necessarily the only things of value and i've really taken a lot mm. from that um point that i think has come from you in, in different forums previously as well so i like that one absolutely you know we we often get stuck mm. particularly in an insolvency negotiation mm. you you're there talking about money but what else is there? And, you know, whether it's, okay, well, we can't we can't really compromise on the sum of money that we need to get from the, that person, but maybe we can compromise on when that will be paid and um, the time frame over which that will be paid. Uh, but there's also all the emotional interests and other things. And, you know, my number one um, thing that I look for there is the idea of what I call a, a low-cost, high-value trade. So what's something that is easy for me to give but mm. is really highly valued from the other person. And, you know, I, I've used that myself in negotiations that I've had where I might be negotiating with someone about a speaking gig and they're limited on budget. So the negotiation might be, well, what else can you mm. give me that doesn't cost you very much? 
but is valuable to me. So that might Mm. be social media coverage or it might be putting my contact details out so that it goes to all of the the participants of the the presentation or something. So I'm always looking at things that will make it more attractive for me. But, you know, if I'm negotiating with someone, I'm going to try and preempt that from their side rather than relying on them to ask for it. Wow, such amazing wisdom and such a great um, discussion, Nicole. Always a great discussion with you. Thank you again for letting me take over the reins today. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, interviewing you and learning so much more. Um, Every time I talk to you, I don't know that there's much more to learn, but I learned so much more um, in terms of negotiation um, and sort of mediations and all of that dispute resolution. I think there's a lot more work that can be done in that area and it's um, the more we can keep talking about it, I think the, the better we will be. Thanks so much, Alice. It's, it's been a pleasure to be interviewed by you. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.